Welcome to an original series, a podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I am Patch, of course, and one of your co-hosts. And with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and soon-to-be Pollywog, if the Upside Down has anything to say about it. Adam, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. How, how are you? <laughs> Good, man. Good. Good. We're in episode three of season two of Stranger Things entitled The Pollywog. This was uh, another good one. And so we'll just get right into it. What were your uh, initial thoughts after uh, after watching this episode, Adam? You know, this one, I was getting a lot of Gremlins vibes. <laughs> I don't know about you. For more than one reason, not just not just the creature that Dustin discovers in his trash can, but there are some other elements that I'll touch upon later that make me feel like this episode was sort of a bit of an homage to Gremlins. Yeah, which is a- I was the same way. It It feels like it progresses the story for sure. When I watched the opening sequence, I was like, called it, totally called it. There's going to be a creature in the trash can, Dustin's going to hide it, and then he's going to show it to his friends the next day because it's completely what you do in the 80s if you're a teenage kid who has nerdy friends (laughs) and if you're Dustin. So I have no issue with that prediction coming true when it makes me feel good and also because it makes perfect sense. So let me tell you, I didn't want that to happen, honestly. Because I didn't want this to turn into a Gremlins type of episode. What I wanted was actually what I got, which is that this polywog, this creature, whatever it turns out to be in relationship to Dustin and these four or five now with Mad Max, I just didn't want it to be PG. I really wanted this to turn into something kind of terrifyingly exciting. You didn't want that cute and cuddly creature. I didn't. I was. I kind of feel like Mike when... Max is trying to kind of immerse herself in this group. And I'm like, I don't want a mascot. I really don't. And I still (laughs) don't. But I was okay with it. By the end of the episode, I was like, all right, this wasn't just about the polywog or the thing, Dartang Dart, as we'll call him, the creature that continues to grow (laughs) as the scenes move forward. (laughs) Lots of good mystery there. Lots of interesting stuff. If you're going to introduce a creature like that, I don't want it to just be a pet or a mascot. I really want it to have some kind of significance. And there's a point in the episode where I feel like it does, which we'll get to. But I was kind of hesitant to feel like, yeah, this is good, but not great. That being said, there was a lot of other stuff that happened in this episode that I really, really found interesting and uh, made another solid episode for me. Well, let's start with <laughs> Dustin's house because yeah. this is another great opening. I don't know that I've watched an episode yet that doesn't have a really great open and we're just drawn right in this is actually really picking up where the last episode left off he's coming into the house he's bringing whatever it is we haven't seen it yet in from the garbage puts it in the uh the ghost trap and i love his dialogue with his mom his mom is like what's wrong with you nothing did something happen no what are you constipated again? No, Mom. Okay, you're acting weird. I am not acting weird. <laughs> it was so innovative for him to come up with this idea that when the trap starts moving, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I rigged it so it looks like I trapped a ghost. And she's like, oh, okay, and, and whatever. And it's so much fun to watch him sort of do this discovery. Dumps yeah. the thing into the terrarium where he has to get rid of his turtle named Yertle, by the way. I don't know if that's just being lazy with uh with names but turtle, i guess turtle yurtle yeah yeah his cat's name is muse so i mean <laughs> there's not really yeah. a lot of creativity here he kind of uh, makes up for it with his naming of this creature he names it d'artagnan or dart for short and you know they bond because dart likes nougat and so he feels validated that somebody something else in the universe likes nougat as much as he does It's really kind of cool because I think my hesitation about this whole mascot type thing was sort of alleviated in some ways when the music at the end of the scenes, which is from like this innocent, da-da-da-da-da, scary. And I'm like, oh man, yeah, this isn't a mugwai, okay? (laughs) This is not, you pour water on, it's going to turn into something bad. This might be something bad. And so I think that was really great that with music, we're kind of given this idea that we can't trust this thing. It may end up becoming a giant lizard that's going to eat people. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. 
We don't know yet, even by the end of the episode, we're not really sure. But at this point, we're kind of questioning it, which I think is a really solid way to open up this episode. Yeah, and I think that last shot right before the opening credits play is is really great. This nice, like you said, very peaceful shot panning over Dustin as he's sort of has fallen asleep while reading a book about reptiles. He's clearly trying to investigate what this creature could be, and then it passes. You know, the the camera pans across uh, some of his toys of ET, and I think there was like a He-Man action figure in there somewhere, and and then it kind of, of course, lands on this cute little creature in the uh, terrarium, which clearly something is happening. It's growing or changing or morphing or mutating, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so the cute and cuddly element of it, it was short-lived, I feel like. We know right away, no, no, this is a danger perhaps in disguise as something cute. Yeah. He's clearly the only one also, by the way, throughout this episode that really thinks it's cute and wants to like protect it. Everyone else is like, get that thing away from me. It's slimy. And you know, they're, they're not having, they're not, they don't want anything to do with it. So Yeah. I think Lucas at one point refers to it as a. Oh, he's like a living booger. Ah, oh, God. It looks like that. And, you know, credit to the, uh, to the special effects team. It did feel a little bit like it was in the real world. We know it was CG. Mm-hmm. Or if yep. it wasn't, that's some pretty amazing practical effects. But it definitely uh, felt as though it were, it were part of the world around it or the uh, the surrounding environment, especially dropped into the terrarium. You could see some things kind of jump up and down and mm-hmm. all that kind yeah. of stuff. Predictably enough, Dustin wants to figure out what's going on with this thing. So he ends up at the library. And this is another great scene where he is trying to basically like schmooze the librarian she tells right. him that he has a five book limit and he's like, yeah, one, two, three, four, five. And she's like, no, that's 10. You already have five out. And then he does that whole like, <laughs> like speech. I am on a curiosity voyage and I need my paddles to travel. These books, these books are my paddle. <laughs> when she doesn't let him, he's like, oh, and then he just drops a swear word and then eventually just kind of fakes her out and leaves and he goes, so good but he basically steals the books yeah he basically does and you know if i'm a librarian i really you know i can't fault a guy for that i mean wants to learn so if you're gonna steal anything i guess steal books that's like that's a good thing maybe and he'll probably return them eventually so eventually (laughs) (laughs) he secretly has a mission that he'll have his own library like all the books from the from the town library are going to be in his bedroom and he's going to be like Come on out to Dustin's library of fun. I've got everything. This, yeah, <laughs> Dustin is a kid that can't wait for the internet. You know, he needs <laughs> the internet because oh my gosh. He, he just wants to learn and, <laughs> and read about everything. Question, though, is this the same librarian that Hopper apparently had some type of date or relationship with in the first season? I didn't really go back to check, but... Yeah, I don't think it is. She seems a little bit older. Like, she kind of gives me the Ghostbusters librarian vibe who gets freaked (laughs) out by the ghost. I mean, she's not that kind of closed off, but she's very much like serious. And she, I think she's a little bit taller than, than what, uh, what we saw in the first season, but no, I think she's a different librarian. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I just, I just came to me. I was like, you know, last time we were in this library, it was in the first season when Hopper and his uh, deputy were going through the microfiche. So I was trying to, yeah, trying to remember. Hawkins is a small town, but I think they have enough money yeah. for two librarians. Maybe a That's, weekend librarian yeah. or, or a night librarian or something. <laughs> I don't know how it works there. Hopper likes the night librarian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hopper. We'll get to you yeah. in a little bit, buddy. Uh, so the next day, predictably enough, he puts the thing in the trap. And uh, when we see him, he's bursting into Mr. Clark's class, who is, by the way, giving a lecture on probably one of my favorite pieces of subject matter from psychology, Phineas Gage. This is a real thing where this guy got a uh, a spike shoved through his skull while he was working on the rail, and it did change his personality. It was something like a psychology 101. You get kind of introduced to this idea of behavior and how our brain works and how it alters. It's such a 
it was a phenomenal story and a phenomenal subject to be taught on early on in my uh, college career. It really kind of solidified the fact that I wanted to do psychology. I really wanted to get my degree. I'd gone to school for that initially, but of course your freshman year, you have a chance to kind of switch things up. That class that I took and specifically that subject was kind of a, a solidifier for me to say, yep, this is what I want to do. That fascinates me. That's interesting. I never, before seeing this episode for the first time, I had never heard of Phineas Gage. It was a very interesting story. I would like, I would like to hear Mr. Clark teach me more about this. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, Mr. Clark to everybody else, but to Dustin, it is my lord, as he yes. so eloquently calls him. And Mr. Clark doesn't even get phased by that. So apparently this is kind of a nickname that he has adopted from Dustin. They have a, a unique relationship, I feel like. They, they kind do. of salute one another in the hallways. And right. yeah, this is clearly not the first time he's just, he's not paying attention. Mr. Clark kind of calls him out on it and he's like, yes, yes, my Lord. Yes. <laughs> so this is a, yeah, <laughs> Dustin is a little bit of a teacher's pet, perhaps. I don't know. Just I think so. Yeah. Someone that really loves his teacher and loves learning. And uh, I, I think looks up to Mr. Clark in a lot of ways and wants to be just mm -hmm. like him. Yeah. yeah and rightly so. Mr. Clark is very open-minded. I think it's it's cool because a couple of scenes later, he wants to show Mr. Clark his discovery. And I believe right. it's the scene prior, one of the scenes prior when he tells, well, it's in that scene where he jumps into the classroom because he's late. He tells all the, all the guys, AV Club, you know, let's meet there. Mm -hmm. And then he leans back and looks over at Mad Max and, and tells her AV Club. She's like, okay. And the face he makes with the thumbs up, he's like so excited that, you know, he's getting everybody on board, especially her. And then he reveals this creature to the gang. And rightly so, they're all freaked out in their own different ways. Then right. he just gives that science lesson of, you know, what he could be. And I think that's really cool, Adam, this empirical path that he takes. He's not just like, yeah. this is a cool creature and I've discovered something amazing. No, he really does kind of his own like research experiment of like, hey, this could be something. He kind of rules everything out. Yeah, he goes through the right. process of deciding what it isn't. And yeah. by doing so, he now knows that maybe he's discovered a new species. Yes. And he takes a lot of pride in that. And he's excited yeah. because they're going to show this thing to Mr. Clark. But it's at this point, and I think this is one of those moments that I was giving it a thumbs up. I was like, good. This is what I wanted to see. Will is realizing that the slug that he threw up at the end of last season <laughs> yeah. and the sounds that he hears in the Upside Down match D'Artagnan. They match in some ways. He's making that connection that close up on his face, I thought was like, yes, great tension, but it's cut really, really subtly with this yeah. great moment of levity when there's like this throwaway audio that's playing in the background. You know, when I become rich and famous for this one day, don't come calling back to me saying, oh my God, Dustin, I'm so sorry for being in you back in eighth grade. Oh my God. I just love little things like that. This is what makes writing, television, movies, just these little moments that just kind of keep you engaged throughout the entire moment. Because it could have just been music, push in on Will, and instead we just get that little bit of like, oh yeah, Dustin, he is so proud. He's just a little reminder that he's so proud of his discovery. And I like how it's all off camera. You almost could miss this if you're not really listening, paying attention. The, the audio is kind of starting to get lower at this point. But if you, especially if you watch with subtitles, as I sometimes do, to kind of pick up more details, you will notice and hear these things. And he also, by the way, is thinking of naming this creature if he indeed, if he has found a new species, he wants to name, name it Dustonius polywagus. That it's, makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. It has his name in it. Dustonius He's just at polywagus. It's a, it's a good name. I, I would support yeah. that if, if this became something that was an original discovery. Unfortunately, we kind of realize that it's not. He goes to Mr. Clark's room to show him, and there's this, <laughs> this great moment where before he reveals it, he goes, let's just clarify. He's talking to Mr. Clark. Let's just clarify. This is my discovery, not yours. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I mean, he is like, I've done the work here. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. And he has. I mean, to be fair, he has done the work. And that's... He has. I can't fault him for that. It's just hilarious. This, what, seventh grade kid or eighth grade kid is like way ahead of his time. I feel like he, right, he's right. going to be an entrepreneur. He's going to be some kind of go-getter of some kind in the 90s. He may yeah. be the guy that invents the internet, not Al Gore. That's he may right. be the one. Yeah. I just I feel like he's going to have something amazing happen. But he never gets a chance to... No, and it's really funny because uh, as you 
mentioned he has, he's carrying this around in the Ghostbusters ghost trap that he also constructed for his Halloween costume. And so as he brings it in to show Mr. Clark on the desk, I love Mr. Clark's reaction here as he looks at the trap, because that's clearly what he thinks he's being shown. He goes, pretty neat. These doors function? Well, yeah, obviously, but it's not about the trap. I mean, like, he's just like Dustin, like an old version of Dustin. Yeah. He just, yeah. all he cares about is like, oh, that's a really good replica of a Ghostbusters trap. Do the doors actually work? Like, that's what he's excited. He's legit excited. And yes. clearly, he would be even more excited if he saw the creature inside. Which does happen, by the way, in Gremlins, which this episode is taking a few cues from. They do take the creatures into the high school science teacher, if, if you remember. So there is a little parallel there, but I'm glad they did it. I think this was smart of them that they decided not to go down completely copying the sort of path that they took in Gremlins. Right. They kind of preemptively decide not to show Mr. Clark because Mike and Will come kind of charging in, realizing that this might be connected to the upside down and not just be a scientific discovery that Dustin believes it is. Yeah. And that's what leads to that back and forth with the crew. They're at the AV club and Max is actually locked out, which I think is Mikey's idea because <laughs> clearly he does yeah, Mike not doesn't like, her. like her. Yeah. He's really given her the cold shoulder so far. Yeah. And so we find out he describes what will is experiencing as having true sight. This is something I'd never heard of. Maybe it's a DD term. It gets explained but essentially he can see into the upside down and that the visions he's having are not flashbacks. They're not nightmares. They're actually, he can be in those two places at once. And I think that's partly informed by his conversation with Will the night before, I think, cause this is like November 1st at this point or a couple of days later, but that night in Mike's basement, they had that kind of explanation. And so both of those guys in the same way that Dustin is kind of doing his own research and discovery, these guys are kind of sleuthing out, okay, what's really happening here? Right. Through this whole sequence, we get a little bit of a division, kind of like we got, not to the extreme that we got in the first season with this breaking up of the Fellowship, but we do get some division here with Dustin's defending Dart. Mike, rightly so, is saying, look, that thing's in the up, from the upside down. It's a bad thing. And Dustin's like, maybe it's not. And it's the whole comparison to someone being on the Death Star doesn't make them bad. Maybe he should be dead. How can you say that? How could you not? He's from the upside down. Maybe. But even if he is, it doesn't automatically mean that he's bad. That's like saying just because someone's from the Death Star doesn't make them bad. Uh, that, that whole thing, it's very much a junior high analogy. Like, that's something I would have said in junior high of like, yeah, you can't tell me that someone that's on the Death Star isn't a bad guy. He's not wrong, but, you know, he kind of might be because the Death Star is a big thing. And you might have folks on there that are kids of parents that are working on it. And they're not necessarily bad. Yeah, it's the uh, clerk's uh, conversation. Like, what about all the guys who are just working on it? You were just building it. They're <laughs> construction workers, you know. They didn't do anything exactly. wrong. It's They, exactly. they were murdered. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know if Mike's analogy completely holds water, but I get his intent. The fact is, yeah. we don't know. We as an audience the crew, even Dustin, who might be a little naive here. What I am surprised, uh, Adam, is that I never hear, and maybe this is just too traumatic for him to say, but I never hear Will say, I threw one of those things up into the sink <laughs> over Christmas break. I'm, I'm surprised that that didn't come up, literally and figuratively, <laughs> whatever, no pun yeah. intended. All we hear is that Will says, yeah, I saw one of those last year and I recognized the sounds. So I don't know if that was intentional or if that's going to be something that comes up later on because of, you know, what we end up finding out with Will. But it did get me curious on, you know, maybe he just didn't want to talk about that or maybe it was enough just to know I've seen those before in the real world. Right. And he does, you know, they talk about how he doesn't like to talk about this stuff. You know, at one point they're telling Max, like, don't bring it up. What happened to him? He doesn't like to talk about it. So clearly he's traumatized. We know this. And so maybe he just doesn't need to say that much for him to. And we do get a cutaway, by the way. We we do see a shot of him throwing up the slug. So we as yes. the viewer are reminded. So maybe that was enough. Maybe that's all we needed is just that he communicated what we're seeing in some way and they understand but yeah, it's uh, clearly not a cute, cuddly creature. There's something else going on. As they're observing it right. there in the AV club, another pair of legs basically sprout out its hindquarters, you know? And then I think Mike wants to kill it at this point. And they're like, no, no, only if it tries to hurt you or something like that. And, and it kind of jumps off the table. They all scream. And this is where I really got 
some Gremlins vibes because the music sounded almost exactly like one of the themes from Gremlins. And it really just kind of, I was having like flashbacks to that movie. So it's, (laughs) which is all good because again, they, they take a few cues from the film, but they kind of, do it their own way they do things their own their own way here and they don't follow it note for note but i did i did like that and uh and then yeah it's basically loose in the middle school and they have to figure out a way to catch it because they now know this is somehow tied to the upside down which they're pretty much the only people that know anything about it and max of course is running around with them not understanding (laughs) what's happening Uh, and this is also where dustin sees mr clark leaving and he kind of gives him a little salute and mr clark is like yeah okay (laughs) see you later (laughs) i i love that dynamic it's really funny to watch each one of them have their own pocket reaction as they're reporting back if they see dart or not mike is obviously just really pissed off and he's like i'm ready to kill this thing after he says, whatever, the coast is clear on my end. Dustin is walking around. He can't find anything and gives yeah, Mr. Clark that salute, as you mentioned. And then I think Will is just kind of creeping around. He's not seeing anything. We come back to him at some point. But Lucas takes the cake in terms of his reaction. So he's supposed to be reporting in. And I don't know what comes over him. But dude just like does a ninja kick to this door where he does not realize there's a teacher behind it. And it's just another great moment of levity, like tension, 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 ha, ha, ha. And now we're back. It's like, sorry, sorry. Okay, yeah. We're, we're clear over here. <laughs> it's so cool But that's kind that. of like what kids that age would do. Like if you didn't think any teachers were around, you would just be like, you know, doing a jump kick on a door because it was fun. There's something so authentic about that. I don't know why, but, and of course the teacher was still there. I mean, this is after school, right? It's a club. So most of the teachers and faculty and staff are supposed to be gone. So I get it. He was just having some fun and clearly Mm -hmm. he was not alone. Yeah. (laughs) So, and then it jumps back to Will who finds Dart in a bathroom stall. Cautious. Yeah. Yeah. He's very cautious. I think Dart runs out or jumps out. And it startles Will. And this is where I might be wrong in this, but I feel like I'm starting to get context clues here that Will's transference into the upside down or that duplicitousness into the upside down is triggered by some kind of, I would say, jump scare or some kind of like traumatic moment. Because the times that he has gone into it that we've seen, with the exception of maybe the arcade, he's been like scared by someone. The last one we saw was at trick-or-treating when he gets scared by the older kids being called, you know, freak or all that kind of stuff. Nonetheless, it sends him into that upside down duplicitous world where he is trying to confront, I would call it the shadow monster. And he's taking the advice of Bob, who was talking to him in the car earlier. I, I love that scene, by the way, with, with him and Bob telling the story. And I really felt like, okay, this is going to come back at some point. And of course it does. What I think is really fantastic in this moment is that, you know, we sort of expect the same thing. We sort of expect, okay, Will is going to overcome this. He's going to overcome his fears. But what happens is this thing essentially like swallows him or engulfs him or something. I don't know really how to describe it. I would say possessed. You know, he's kind of like possessed by it in some way. Like it kind of goes in all of his orifices and now it's part of him. That's how I took it. But yeah. That was kind of all we got <laughs> at that point. <laughs> we uh, were left hanging, literally, mm-hmm. and we don't know what happens next. Yeah. In the meantime, Dustin finds Dart and puts him under his hat and tries to protect him. And at that point, again, because the episode ends so abruptly, we don't really know what happens with him. I am curious if, if that's going to be a deal breaker between him and his friends, if he's going to essentially choose Dart in certain situations over his friends. I, I don't think yeah. so, and I don't really know what's going to happen, but that amplifies the importance of Dart. And I'm hoping that that becomes more of an important plot point, not just, I want to protect my pet. Although that's nice and cute. <laughs> I just, I don't want that for my own personal entertainment, but it's okay. I'm, I'm okay yeah. with whatever happens. I have a feeling at the rate this thing is growing, it's not going to be much of a pet for very long. But I could be wrong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How to train your demogorgon is what we're going to get. Like that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's growing fast, changing, whatever you want to, mutating. I don't know, whatever it's doing. Yeah, changing, 
color changing and shaping. Yeah. You know, sh- yeah, is it going to grow more legs? We don't know. I don't think it will, but we'll see. And that's the other thing, Adam, is at this point, it's nothing recognizable that we've seen so far. So we right. know what a Demogorgon looks like. Right. And we know what this sort of shadow monster looks like. But this thing, the slug, that is now kind of growing a little bit with some weird head. I think it's a Demogorgon. I think it's going to have the petals, the, the alien petals that <laughs> right. we are so used to. That's my assumption. Yeah, maybe it doesn't grow those till puberty or something. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's a teenager. He's like Groot. You know, it's like the Groot yeah. of the Upside Down. <laughs> I am Demogorgon. <laughs> Demogorgon pimples all over. You know, we'll see his adolescent phase. and <laughs> Rebelling against his Demogorgon parents. <laughs> Not going to be pretty. <laughs> that won't be pretty. Oh, man, if that happens, man, I should be writing for this show. <laughs> yeah. Call the Duffer Brothers. Let me, let me come on staff with them. Part of the uh, events that happened at the school involved Elle. This is another kind of cool subplot. You know, her journey continues. So the the episode also walks us through more of her connecting back with Jim. Mm-hmm. We see a little bit more of that flashback where she sees him put the egos in the little container. And then they discover each other. And so then we get sort of the backstory on how they get to Jim's house. I mean, he never explains what happened to his mansion of a, of a trailer by the lake, his lakeside trailer or his beachside trailer. <laughs> but we don't I really I think care. he still has it because he mentioned that the cabin was his grandfather's and he just used it for storage. So my, in my head, he probably still uses or maintains the mansion of a trailer by the lake as his you know that's his summer home maybe no that's that's clearly though his primary residence that is listed you know with the police force and everything and he's using the cabin as a secret residence to keep l and no one yeah. no one can know that and i believe he stays there with her I, I would think yeah he so. does I think he, right okay yeah but I'm, i i guess my point is just that he has to have a regular residence where he gets his mail and where he has a phone and all that kind of stuff so he's he has to perhaps pop into his trailer once a day to check on things <laughs> <laughs> even though he's staying with l in the cabin the the episode shows kind of how all this progresses and i love a good montage especially when mm-hmm. it's uh joined by uh jim croce i think that's oh, yeah. fantastic what a great little background music uh, they're cleaning up hopper's dancing l is excited to have a bed again i think that's kind of cool appreciating yep. the little things and this is where jim teaches her morse code and then he also teaches her about a tripwire which i didn't really discover until i watched it the second time just what he actually did where he puts a hole in the mousetrap puts a bullet in there so that when somebody triggers it, the mousetrap triggers, and then the flap that would normally trap the mouse actually kicks the bullet and gives a little boom for a startling effect. Exactly. Yeah, a little loud noise to wake everybody up, which makes perfect sense because, you know, you're not going to hear a tripwire otherwise. You need something, if you're sleeping or whatever, to wake you up and alert you. But this is an interesting scene for a couple reasons, or this whole section, because... Not only is Hopper teaching Elle a lot of things, as a father would, but he's preparing her for this new reality that they have, which is you can't be found. He knows, because he made this deal with the government. He knows what's going to happen if she gets found. As we know, he lost his daughter before the first season. And there's actually a great little moment when he first takes her into the cabin where you see there's a, a little box that says Sarah on it, and he kind of hides it, pushes it away. Like, I, mm-hmm. this had, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of... A lot of history here, he says. So this is clearly where he's buried some of his personal things that he doesn't want to have to think about. And now he's trying to keep Elle away from them as well, perhaps. But he does give her, though, three rules that need to be followed. And this is another, for me, Gremlins reference, if you will. In Gremlins, you know, you have the don't expose the Mogwai to light. Sunlight will kill it. And don't let it come in contact with water and never feed it after most of all never, never feed it after it midnight after most important before, before, before. and so he kind of has he kind of recites these rules which he calls the don't be stupid rules in a very similar fashion he says always keep the curtains drawn and this is a great scene too because it intercuts with hopper from the past telling her these rules and l from the present actually breaking each and every one of them <laughs> so right. first and foremost always keep the curtains drawn she opens the curtains Second, only open the door if you hear my secret knock. And as you mentioned, he teaches her a secret knock. And it's if you didn't pick it up, it's Morse code for us. That's the knock. Okay. So that's connected to the Morse code. And then he says, most of all, don't ever go out alone, especially in daylight, which sounds just like 
gremlins, you know? So yeah. I think that was the last <laughs> tie for me that made it all come around. But And then, of course, she leaves and she steps yeah. over the tripwire and ventures off into the woods alone mm -hmm. during daylight. So she's clearly defying every rule because there's a a scene before this where she gets really upset with Hopper because they've been trapped in this house for 360 something days. And he keeps telling her soon we can go find Mike soon. We can go out and sort of reintegrate into the civilized world, but it never happens. And so she doesn't understand and she's confused and she's angry at him and says, friends don't lie. Friends don't lie, which is something that Mike taught her in the first season. So this yeah. whole section, I really appreciated this because it really helped to sort of establish their relationship that they have, this kind of surrogate father-daughter relationship. And just like with real parents, you know, sometimes you have fights. Sometimes you want to break the rules and defy your parents' rules. And clearly Hopper was not expecting her to do this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it added a level of humanity that we got from, from Elle. I think that was something that we both appreciated from the first season is that as she came out of her cell or her kind of shell of a person where she's not just a conduit to teleconnect with other right. people or be able to see other places, this scene in particular showed a lot of emotion, but emotion that was justified, not confused emotion. Like she really had legitimate reasons for yelling. She said, when is soon? It's not dangerous anymore. When? I don't know. On day 500? I don't know. On day 600? I don't know. Day 700? On day 800? On day The writing here is so fantastic because it was chaotic, but it was controlled chaos. And the music and the tension all the way leading up to her saying, friends don't lie, like repeating that. And then eventually her using her power to just throw the, uh, what was it, the triple-decker ego extravaganza, <laughs> the half-eaten one there, <laughs> yeah. right in his face. And then she, like a daughter, goes into her room and slams the door. But of course with Elle, she's not actually slamming the door. She's using her mind to slam it. But this is a father-daughter relationship. This is a parent-child relationship. You don't understand me. Why do I have to do this? Because I said so. This is essentially what it boils down to. His yeah. three rules boil down to because I said so. Why do I have to follow these rules? Because I said so. And so from one perspective, I have a little respect for her because she needs to get out. She needs to reconnect. And I get he's a helicopter parent in a sense because of what he knows, because of the deal he's made with the government. But you still get this fantastic dynamic of relatable parent-child relationships. I'm not looking forward to having these kinds of conversations with my son when he's a teenager. <laughs> yeah. I imagine in the house that we're living in, there is a window in his room that leads to the front yard and it's a single level. And I just, in my head, I imagine him sneaking out at like 10 o'clock at night and going to a friend's house or going somewhere that is just completely nefarious and like, no, don't do that. <laughs> or sneaking back in at 3 a.m. Oh gosh. Cause I, I did that. And I'm like, great. He's going to do this. He's going to, when is he going to do it? That's the question. Not if, but when. So I see that with Ellen Hopper. And there's also this, um, this other dynamic of her wanting not only to reconnect with Mike, but she gets sort of this yearning to meet her mom again. Like there's right. a really interesting flashback where he's reading a book and I, my two questions are what the book is and why is he reading this to her? Because this is like just adding trauma to trauma at this point where he's talking about this girl who loses both her mom and her dad, just watching this juxtaposed against the present day where she sees a mom and her daughter. Kind of, I think it triggers the book reading incident. We get more complexity to her. She, she wants to reconnect in general, specifically with Mike, but now there's like this maternal desire for her to connect to. And right. obviously Hopper can't provide that because he's not her mom. And so maybe that's planting a seed that she may eventually meet her real mom at some point. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually a passage from uh, Anne of Green Gables, which is interesting okay. because if you remember when we're seeing the flashbacks to Hopper's daughter in the hospital, that's what he's reading to his daughter, Sarah, in the hospital in season one. So, and Got that it. particular passage is also interesting because it's a section where Anne is describing her state of being an orphan to a friend of hers. So, which clearly Elle is like an orphan. So what I like about this is it's 
everything is there for a reason. Everything has purpose. Right. There's lots of parallels, just like we've discussed in good films like Back to the Future. Everything is connected. Everything, every little detail means something. And I, I really appreciate that. And sometimes it's not so obvious upon first viewing. You have to kind of watch it a couple times before you pick up these little... These, I, I only picked it up this time because I've seen it. This is like my third time seeing it in preparation for this podcast. And I, I did not notice it on my first viewing. So it's good stuff. I really got into it. And I like the fact that she is asking about her mom. I think he says that she's is away or gone. And Hopper doesn't... He doesn't really give her much hope. He just kind of says, yeah, she's not here anymore. And whether that means dead or whether that means unreachable, we don't really know, as, as you said. These are all sort of open-ended questions at this point. Yeah, and I mean, the empathy that he has is genuine. I don't think he's just yeah. throwing her a bone here and trying to keep her from thinking about that. I mean, he sees this loss of his daughter. Like, at some mm -hmm. point, you will not have a person in your life anymore for whatever reason, and that's a bad thing. And it's okay to feel bad about that. But it's interesting to watch him go back to the book because I don't know that he knows how to navigate that. Like, I don't yeah. think he knows how to talk to her who is learning about, you know, words of the day, like compromise and using right. Morse code. How do you talk to someone who is atypical? Because she's not your daughter, but you're kind of treating her like your daughter. And so there's this just crazy juxtaposition of him being not only a protector and a police officer, but also a father figure. And so I think he's in kind of uncharted waters too. Oh, yeah. He cares about her deeply, but I just don't think he knows how to care for her in a way that's going to be beneficial to her. And that's not his fault. It's just how it is. Yeah, I agree. He's out of practice. If you think about it, he hasn't been a father for many years. We don't know exactly how long ago Sarah passed away, but she was clearly much younger than Elle is now. So in a way, it's almost like his daughter came back and jumped ahead four or five years in, in age. And now he has to pick up where he left off with a much older young girl who is dealing with different questions. Although Elle, of course, mentally is in a way younger. So there's that combination of parenting issues that he has to grapple with. So I think that's what we're seeing here in this episode for the first time is sort of Hopper trying to pick up where he left off as a father with his own child, but with a much older daughter now who's dealing with far more challenging and supernatural issues that no father would be, would be prepared for, frankly. So it's hard enough to be a dad. I have a daughter and it's hard enough to be a father to a daughter, but to have your daughter also have uh, supernatural powers definitely would be, would add a level of complexity to the process to say the least. Yeah, especially to someone who has feelings for a boy. And that's something that we get a really right. good push here. Like after she leaves the conversation with the mother and daughter, mm -hmm. <laughs> what a great distraction. She lets the swing do its thing and it right. you know causes them to be distracted. She takes off. She goes to school. She sees Mike and there's this like great hope. But when she sees him, he's talking to Max. And of course, they have their own, Max and Mike have their own little confrontation about, she said, why do you hate me? And why can't I be a part of your club? And then they kind of get this kind of semi-friendly flirtation going on where right. she's like, you know, I could be a Zoomer in your club, you know, with my, <laughs> with my skateboard. <laughs> right. And he's like, there's no such thing as a Zoomer. That's not because they're <laughs> clearly their, their club is a D&D &D club. So everybody has a role as part of a D&D &D party. And Elle was the quote unquote mage when she was a part of the party. Yeah, Max doesn't know anything about D&D &D apparently because she doesn't understand. She's just making up her own character. And, and As Mike's, she should. She should, yeah, make, yeah. she should make up her own character. <laughs> but that seems to wear Mike down. And so as you watch her talk to him, through the lens of L, you can see him smiling a little bit. You can see elements of jealousy coming from Eleven. Mm -hmm. There's this really great quick shot of Mike and Max sort of holding arms. So this is the point where Eleven has basically used her power to make Max fall off her skateboard. And you see Mike pick up Max. It's not hand-holding, but it's a physical connection that L has not had with him in right. months, like almost a year I mean, that breaks her heart. And then that's where we find out where Max describes kind of this tug. This is a this is a poltergeist moment for me. This tug, this like magnetic yeah. tug, kind of like Carol Ann. Um, yeah. And then it got Mike thinking, is Eleven here? And, and he looks. And is of she around? See yeah. her, but he, 
all this happens at the end of the episode and we're like, oh, it's going to happen to all I this know, stuff. I know, I know. The sad thing is, poor Elle. If Elle hadn't knocked Max off her skateboard, they wouldn't have touched hands. It's like she actually made it oh. worse by being yeah. jealous. If she had just walked into the gym <laughs> and said hi, then nothing would have happened. But she actually right. created a scenario where he felt bad for Max and tried to help her up and they had that moment of contact. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's funny, too, because I find that Max was being very distant to the other members of their party, like Dustin and Lucas, because they were, like, all over her, trying to get her to be a part of their activities. And Mike, being the one that doesn't want anything to do with her, she's kind of interested in him. So it's typical, right? And so <laughs> Go after the boy that's ignoring you, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, all this time we get Elle's story. This is taking place over, I guess, most of the day. In the meantime, Hopper is on his own kind of police story. He goes to the yeah. police station. He's still trying to solve this whole, like, dead crop issue. And right. um, so he's at the police station. He finds, looking at the map, that there's actually sort of an epicenter of all this that's happening. And it's what? <laughs> it's Hawkins Lab. So he goes to Hawkins' lab, and he confronts the doctor. Uh, Dr. Owens, I think is his name. I'll eventually get his name. I keep calling him Dr. Dr. Riser. Paul Riser. <laughs> Dr. Riser, you know. Dr. Mad About You. <laughs> <laughs> he tells him about this potential leak that's causing the crops to die, and there's this really kind of tense little tension between the two of them. All right, so so you're you're giving me orders now? No. I keep things nice and quiet for you. Mm -hmm. And you keep your out of my town. That is the deal. I have done my part. Now you do yours. I think that put a fire under Dr. Owen's butt and he gets his team out there. They gather the uh, Smashing Pumpkins, not the band, but the actual pumpkins themselves. We're kind of left at that. Like that's kind of another open-ended thing of like, okay, are they going to take it back to the lab? What are we going to discover from right. that, because clearly Dr. Owens thinks that they've contained it, and right. you know they they talks about their method, like we burned whatever was left, and apparently there's yeah. something else going on. Well, and it, this is where I really feel a little suspicious about Dr. Owens because he's kind of like joking with him, like this is nothing. What are you talking about? Like what? Are you, what's your problem? And he's like, fine, we'll go out. We'll take we'll take some core samples, you know, we'll, and and so he's still even while they're doing the core samples, he's just acting very nonchalant. Like, I don't think we're going to find anything, but we'll we'll do some we'll run the tests. But meanwhile, you've got like a dozen men in white hazmat suits. Why do you need hazmat suits if this is, quote unquote, nothing? Right. So clearly the doc knows something or is being cautious enough to know that something could have happened that they don't know about. And I think we're on the same page here that something clearly bad has leaked out perhaps from the lab or we don't really know much more at this point, as you said, it's, but mm-hmm. it's clear something's happening. Yeah. I don't trust the doctor, but I'll tell you who I do trust Adam is Bob. He's three for three on good guy <laughs> on the yeah. good guy scale. I just love Sean Astin in this so far. He really is fantastic in this role. Yeah. Upbeat and fun. I want to believe that easy peasy, that phrase is going to become something significant. <laughs> it, it was used a couple of times in this episode. It was used the night before or on Halloween when he was describing how to use the Zoom, easy peasy. Yep. And I feel like something dramatic is going to happen in this season that he's going to say. And then when at the end of it, he's going to be like, easy peasy, you know, just <laughs> just like like a yeah. like a, a catchphrase of some kind. What, if you, It kind of ended with him saying the last lines of this episode, as you're seeing Will be, let's say, possessed by this this smoke creature, whatever it is, what were easy peasy, just like that. Like that was like you hear his advice that he was giving Will in the car. So we kind of got a little bit of that already. But yeah, clearly this was not easy peasy. <laughs> this was, no, was the not. total opposite of that. <laughs> So watching his little arc with Joyce, I thought was really cool. First of all, when we get to see him for the first time in the episode, they're all looking for the keys to her car. Yep. We're looking, Mom. Yeah, we're, we're looking. Aha! Found him! Oh. <laughs> Hiding under some jeans, sneaky little buggers. Can you take Will to school today? I cannot be late again. He's staying over now. Can you just take Will, please? 
clearly their relationship, him and Joyce's relationship has elevated. I like the fact that Jonathan is not becoming like the bitter older brother, the bitter son. That's like, you can't date him. That's wrong. He's just uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And Bob recognizes that later. There's this great moment where he comes up to the pharmacy with bologna sandwiches and she's like <laughs> excited because it's bologna sandwich day apparently. But they have this really, really fantastic conversation outside the pharmacy. I, I like you so much. Not just you. Everything that comes with you. Your family, your boys. And I hope it's not wishful thinking, but I kind of feel like I'm breaking through with it. I mean, not so much Jonathan. He's a tough cookie to crack, but with Will, I don't know. I feel like we're connecting. He likes you, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's just enamored with her. He goes, I get to date Joyce Byers. Like, how, how he's doting on her is so sweet and romantic, and he's completely honest about who he is because he describes that moment or that event where he says, hey, um, my JVC got dinged up. It's okay. It's, it's fine. And I thought he was going to get mad about the JVC. He was going to try to right. you know, confront her about it. But in reality, he was letting her know about Will being bullied by some older kids. Right. Which he was. Yeah. From his perspective, just being able to say, I was never really one to put up a fight. I struggled a lot like Will when I was a kid. With bullies. It's the ones like us that don't punch back that people really take advantage of. You know, they rub your nose in it just a little bit more. I don't know why they do that. Maybe it makes them feel powerful. So watching her get her mama bear on, where she's like, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to kill them. And (laughs) he's like, I love that about you. I love the fact that you punch back. And he puts himself in that position of that's not the guy he was. He was Will in high school. He was the one bullied. So he understands that. But I think he fe- he genuinely feels like he has this redemption. So he's not just throwing her a bone by saying, I get to date Joyce Byers. No, I think he really is proud of the fact that he gets to date this woman who is raising two boys on her own. She's strong. And I don't think he knows about the upside down and all the craziness that she went through. I think he knows that she's got memories that are right. not easy. But it's just really cool to see how he dotes on her. I love how he tries to mansplain how to connect the JVC. Hey, um, I'm, I'm trying to watch your video thingy, and the tape, it just, it's tiny. It's like it's shrunk. It's because it's a VHS-C, not a VHS. you got to find the RFP1U with coaxial cable so you can connect the video ins and outs. Bob, English. Right. Sorry. Um... And so he's yeah. like, all right, let me walk you through it. The, and by the way, that scene for me where we see him at work at Radio Shack, clearly we now know he works at Radio Shack in town. And if you go back to season one, it's there, like two stores down from the pharmacy where George works. So they work right near each other, which makes perfect sense why he can walk over with lunch and they can have lunch together very easily. But this was such a fun scene for me. It's one shot of him sitting at a, at a counter at Radio Shack. He's like working on something at, uh, on the counter and there's all the the, you know, the vintage products behind him. It just took me back because I used to go to Radio Shack all the time. Whenever you needed something, that's where you went. And of course, it doesn't really exist anymore, at least not in the same capacity. The brand still exists, but you don't find Radio Shack stores anymore. People don't fix televisions and <laughs> buy wires like this. I mean, you can find whatever you need, of course, in other places, but it was such an important store for so long. And somebody like him, it makes perfect sense that he would work there. And I could totally see Dustin getting yeah. like a summer job. <laughs> yeah, working under Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> getting rides in the Bob Mobile, that kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and I also want to say that I laughed when he said, Oh, it's VHSC. It doesn't work because Joyce tries to put this little tape in the VCR and she's like literally putting it inside. Like, why doesn't it work? Like, she's that technophobic but my family had a vhsc camcorder and i remember like what's what are these tiny cassettes yes you can connect it like they do directly into the tv but what we had is this little cassette that you put the tape inside and it kind of unspooled the the videotape into a larger tape so that it could be compatible with a standard vcr i thought that was the coolest thing as a kid how it just kind of took that small tape and made it adapted it for a larger cassette 
And yeah, that's that's how we recorded our home videos. That's how we that's how we edited things and and watched movies when we were uh, kids in the eighties. I never had a VHSC. I had a VHS. That JVC was similar to one that that I had a full size tape in it. Yeah, yeah, we used full size tapes, but they were that big and they were that heavy. Right. And I remember the Zoom, the T, and the W, and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and what that reminded me of, Adam, the idea of adapting, because I thought about that. I remember that there were tapes that you would stick inside bigger ones, right? and then you would put them in the VCR, and they would essentially adapt to it. It reminded me a lot, and you and I are around the same age, so you probably remember this too, when CD players were becoming a thing, the Discman, the right. Sony Discman that you would carry, and you wanted to listen to your CDs in the car, you would have that tape with yes. the wire attached to it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. Like, how in the world are you getting the music from the CD and that little wire to go to that tape that (laughs) would expand out? I mean, I I still want to know how that works. Like, I need a Mr. Rogers episode to walk me through how that works because I, to this day, I'm still fascinated with that concept. I get Bluetooth, this digital airwave type thing, but that's in some ways not as fascinating as this ability to take something that is physically producing music differently than a CD how can a wire and a piece of plastic produce what's coming from a CD instantaneously? It would just it blew my mind. I still have one of those. I have it actually not too far from where I'm sitting right now in a bin with old AV cables and adapters and wires and things. Like I have all that stuff still. I've never gotten rid of it. So I always think there might be that time where I might need it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't yet needed it. I think the last time yeah. I, I used that adapter... It's probably in 2001. So, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> that sounds about right. And yeah. <laughs> we've come a long way and we'll yeah. continue to go a long way. Just the idea of I've got a CD player in my car and it's an MP3 player and I don't use it at all because yeah. it's all Bluetooth. It's all just right. easy for my phone, easy peasy, you know, right from right, my phone. Right, right. Instead of taking mixtapes or mixed CDs, I mean, just it blows my mind how far we've come. And it happens just gradual enough that. You don't really notice what's happening as it's happening. It's just like, oh, yeah, now we've gone from this to this. And it's just those little baby steps. And then you look back 20 years later and you're like, wow, how, what's, what's happened here? We're in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're in the now. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> right. it's, it's so, so wild. Well, speaking of things that are gradual or subtle, part of that scene with Joyce hooking up the videotape, we see the whole sequence play out. We see her son getting bullied. We see Will getting bullied. It's interesting to see the perspective from the camera. It falls down, and we see him walking away yelling, Mike. And, of course, that lines up with what we see from his perspective. But then she pauses it, and she sees this static outline of something, and it kind of triggers something in her. And it's the picture. It reminds her of the picture that Will drew of this creature, and it freaks her out. And so she calls the school, and they're like, yeah, AV Club was canceled. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And this is something I've noticed is that this episode in particular does it three times, but I'm going to start watching. People in Hawkins like to peel out and take off really quickly from (laughs) a stopped position. She does it. Jim does it as soon as he finds out that Elle is actually out of the house when his deputies say, hey, that whole Russian conspiracy theory thing, it may hold some water. So he peels out in his truck, and then Billy, he's talking to this girl that I guess he's going to go sleep with, um, he peels out just after he tells her that Max is not his sister, something we didn't know until today or until this episode. So lots of people want to yeah. peel out. I don't, I don't really know if that's something that you just do in Hawkins or if everybody's just in a hurry, but yeah, lots of people, <laughs> you know, leaving from a park position and then peeling I out. I think my take is car accidents are the least of their worries in Hawkins, Indiana. They have a lot of true supernatural and, interdimensional issues going on. So they're like, yeah, car accidents, no big deal. And there's a couple of really good shots. I think it's the shot when Joyce peels out where she does it so insanely that dirt and gravel get like shot up all over the camera lens. And love <laughs> so, that. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they really, they like to create a sense of urgency with yeah. uh, their departures. And yeah, <laughs> I was reminded of a similar thing happening. Like if you ever watched in the heat of the night, I was you know, big on Nick sure. at night and it would show up. Everybody in Sparta, Mississippi had brake problems because all their brakes would squeak when they would stop so <laughs> right. or when they'd slow down. So 
you've got some similarities here. I'm going to see who else in town is going to be peeling out from a stop position. I'm, I'm just going to keep a count, maybe do a little like a, a little candy game. Like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to eat some Starburst every time this happens. Every this time. is going to be fun. <laughs> or some Cheetos. Be like there Keith. You go. I'm going to eat some Cheetos every time somebody peels out. Oh, from stop! A stop. Now I'm getting hungry. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go buy some. Yeah, we absolutely probably need to have a snack at some point when we're covering some of these episodes. <laughs> snack break. Snack break. They can listen to us snack. <laughs> let's uh, let's connect over to um, to Jonathan and Nancy and Steve, actually. I think these are the kind of the loose ends that we were left with from the, yeah. uh, from the last episode. We start getting reintroduced to what happened in the aftermath of the Halloween party with the, the BS rant. <laughs> yeah. We're in the gym uh, with Steve, and he's, he's going up against Billy, who I'm starting to realize, look, he's starting to remind me a little bit of a, a really gross Zac Efron at this point. Like There are times I'm like... <laughs> he does look a little... He has a little Zac Efron-esque to his face. Like I, I yeah. felt the same thing when but like, uh, brooding, I first saw like, him. Yeah. Like if High School Musical was a horror movie, like that's kind of what <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of, or suspense or like, yeah. If <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe it's because he's playing basketball. I was waiting for Billy to say, get your head in the game at some point. And you know, maybe not. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So he, he is basically schooling Steve and saying, look, I'm king of the school at this point. You're an afterthought. And Nancy shows up. And this is where I got to tell you. I'm kind of on Steve's side here because Nancy doesn't remember a thing. And he's like, and that justifies what you said. And he basically calls out what we talked about last episode, which is like, apparently everything is BS to you, including our relationship. And I was a little confused. Maybe you can clarify, but later Jonathan says that Nancy says to Nancy that Steve told him to give her a ride home. I don't think that's the case. I think he's lying to her. Yeah. That is yeah. that, yeah, is that true? Yeah, I we clearly weren't shown that, and I think what's happening here is that Jonathan is sort of trying to defend Steve. He knows that Steve and Nancy are going together. He doesn't want to be the reason they break up. He doesn't want to cause anything to happen. And I also think Jonathan has a sort of newfound respect for Steve after the events that they went through together at the end of season one. Clearly, they saved Hawkins together and killed the Demogorgon almost killed the Demogorgon, <laughs> gave it a good beating. And also, let's remember, Steve made good with Jonathan by gifting him through Nancy, the camera, at Christmas time. So I think they're on good terms, and I just think Jonathan's trying really hard to, to kind of be neutral and not create any additional ripples in the water that aren't already there. <laughs> That's kind of my takeaway. Is he just, he's kind of okay. kind of a little bit of a sticking up for his bro is kind of how yeah. I see it. Yeah. I can, yeah, I can see that as well. I don't know that it necessarily will <laughs> create good vibes between him and Steve because to Steve that could look like you, you like my girl. I know that you're in love with her. Yeah, I get that. And and the problem is, is that Jonathan and Nancy have sort of a common interest or a common grief, and that they're not over what's happened, and they're right. dealing with their own stuff. Like Nancy's dealing with the loss of Barb. Jonathan's dealing not with the loss of Will, but with things changing. He even says. I mean, maybe, maybe things just can't go back to the way they were. And, and that's a really profound statement. Like, he is recognizing the fact that things aren't going to be the same anymore. So how right. do we adapt to them? And Nancy is so mad. This is the first time I think we really get her saying, I hate those people that did this to us. And he says, all those people that did this to us are dead. And she goes, really? And so we're starting to get a little bit of conspiracy theory coming out of Nancy. She gets an idea that like the other 40 things at the end of the episode, we don't know <laughs> what that is. They go to Radio Shack. They do something enough to skip fourth period, apparently, and it involves Radio Shack, which we have decided is an awesome place, specifically because <laughs> Bob works there. And they end up calling Barb's mom saying, hey, I need to tell you something, Nancy specific. I need to tell you something about your daughter. We see that <laughs> they're still being listened to by Whoever this mysterious like department is, maybe it's the Department of Energy, but the people listening on the phones are still there. And then she tells uh, Barb's mom, not on the phone, meet me tomorrow at Forest Hills Park is, uh, is where they're supposed to meet. And we don't know. We don't know what they bought at Radio Shack. At least I didn't right. see it. They had it in the bag. And that we're kind of left to wonder, okay, what's, what's happening here? But uh, it was triggered by a Walkman, <laughs> 1984. I guess it's a Sony Walkman, I would assume, if it's a Walkman. And yeah, we're just kind of left going, all right, what's going to happen next? Which 
you know, that's enough for me to obviously watch the next episode after we record as I usually do or try to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'll add that in this scene that you're talking about when Jonathan and, and Nancy kind of come home from Radio Shack to the house to go up to their room to call Barb's mom, they get met by Nancy's mom. And I just have to say that she is so clueless in this scene. Both of these parents in this family are just the worst parents. Yeah. They're just like oblivious. Idiot parents. Yeah, just in their own world. Parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they make me smile, though. I think that's what they're there for. They're there to kind of make you laugh and kind of say, like, yep, that's those are parents that just are not in touch or in sync at all with what's going on in their teenage children's lives at all. Yeah, I was reminded, and I'm, I am just continuously reminded with this set of parents particularly, because that's really the only set of parents we get to see most of the time. Right. It's similar to Anthony Michael Hall's parents in Weird Science when they're yeah. completely clueless about what he's doing. Their you know, scientific girlfriend is taking him to a party, and she basically <laughs> leaves his parents oblivious to what's going on. But Again, this is such great tribute to 1980s parenting. Yes. Where yeah. it would be inconsistent to have parents who are in touch with their kids' lives. Instead, you have them being played sort of for laughs. I hope at some point we get a little bit more depth to these characters because, you know, I like rounded characters. I'm fine with being able to laugh at Mike's mom and dad, particularly at his dad because he has the best little naive zingers of the of the show but i also recognize that you know we have four seasons with all these characters so right i'd be fine either way it'd be cool to see some more depth from them but if all we get is just this yep the clueless parents of these children that need to kind of figure things out on their own just reinforces what the cinematic 80s were like oh yeah yeah i mean it Another, like we talked about risky business in the last episode those parents were totally oblivious in that movie all they cared about was that didn't have a party or anything. Like They're just the typical kind of upper middle class white parents in America in the 80s. They were just going to their country clubs or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They have no clue what Ferris is up to. They're just going to work, coming home, making dinner. Just They've got their perfect children. Yeah, it's just all how they look, right? It's all the image. They don't really know what... Yeah. And, and maybe it has to do with what they were like when they were that age. If they weren't doing those things in the 60s, let's say, when they were that age, then that's their only only frame of reference, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. It makes for good comedy. It does. And, I, and I'm fine with that. I'm not going yeah. to hate on the show if they don't do anything more than what they're doing now. So kudos to the Duffer Brothers for uh, for putting this together. And, and really, kudos to Sean Levy. This was very, yep. very much a, a character-centric episode. I think that's something that we're becoming used to is that when we see Sean Levy, we kind of put ourselves in the position that, hey, we're, we're probably going to get a little bit of action, but really more character development. The writing was was top notch here. I, I love some of the set pieces. I love just the little things that we got to see throughout the episode. Not a lot of like throwbacks like, oh, I remember that from the 80s, but just right. like the Dr. Pepper can that Bob was drinking from, you know, very much of that time period. Uh, we see at one point, and this is all food related, you know, go figure because I like food and drink. But um, when Nancy and Jonathan are talking, they're on the car and we see Pringles and a tab, you know, yeah. and I was reminded of <laughs> that whole sequence in Back to the Future where Marty's in 1955. And he's like, uh, yeah, give me, give me a tab. Tab? I can't give you a tab unless you order something. All right, give me a Pepsi free. You want a Pepsi, pal? You're going to pay for it. Right, Every time right. I see a tab, that's what I think of <laughs> is that scene. And I was, again, reminded of that here. I never see tab anymore. I, I've never, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't think it exists. Yeah. yeah. I got excited because clearly Canadian has come back after a long hiatus. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really, you know, kind of feeling great about that. That's become <laughs> right. lately my drink of choice. Of course, they're, they're more expensive than I'd like them to be. So I don't drink them a lot. But, but yeah, tab, I'm, I'm glad it's, if it's gone, I'm glad it's gone. You know, we don't need that. We don't need clear <laughs> Pepsi. I mean, these are these are tragic soft drinks that we do not need to come back. <laughs> new Coke, yeah, we don't need that either. We're going to be done if you like New Coke. We might have to. Nobody listening right who was born after 1985 even knows what <laughs> New Coke was is or was. But yeah, it was a bad experiment. It was tragic, is what it was. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. tragic. <laughs> yep. All right, Adam, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I just I think overall this was a real, like you said, a really good episode that pushes the characters forward 
we, as we mentioned, Sean Levy directed. He's also directing the next episode, which is what he did in the first season as well. So he did two back-to-back episodes. And I think that's that makes sense because if you're going to tackle in a show like this, if you're going to tackle an episode, you really, you maybe you don't have enough time to kind of leave your imprint on a single episode. So sometimes you need to kind of take a, a two-hour chunk like that and really just give it your style, give it your imprint, if you will, and make it yours. So that it'll be good to see uh, how this all kind of plays out under his direction again in the next episode. Yeah, this may feel a lot like when we talked the last season, his two-episode arc. It was a essentially a part one and part two. So maybe yeah. we get the setup of everything mashed up at the end. Maybe we get the payoff of all that before we get right. into a new set of uh, conflict and whatnot. So I hope we get exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be interesting. A couple other fun things that I'll just throw out. I mean, one thing that I thought was interesting is that there was a mention of that Russian girl that Murray was going on about. So there's there's a little pickup on that thread. So this idea that there's this conspiracy of a, a Russian girl running around Hawkins. So we had a little mention of that. Overall, this episode just gave us one of the best, perhaps, cliffhangers that we've had yet. We mentioned earlier that Will gets possessed at the very end. And I think that we don't know what this means, right? We don't know, is he no longer Will? And this is why I think it's interesting they brought up that guy that you were talking about earlier, the... Uh, um, Phineas um, Gage. Yeah, Phineas Gage, that he was no longer the same after he had that metal rod inserted in his brain. And so I feel like we were getting a little foreshadowing to what's about to happen to Will here, that he's going to be somehow different after this possession or this whatever happened, right? Whatever happened, whatever we visually saw happen to him at the end of this episode. We're going to now have a new version of Will, perhaps something that could be bad for the rest of the party. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes sense with the upcoming episode titled will the wise so if there is a transformation maybe we're going to get that in in chapter four will the wise coming up next time and will the wise if you recall was the he was the wizard in his party will the wise and maybe will has become a wizard now maybe so mr wizard wait that's another 80s show that we're not gonna (laughs) have time to get into (laughs) no not not today no And that's going to do it for us on this episode of an original series. We appreciate everyone tuning in to listen to our conversation. We hope you've enjoyed it until we talk next time. I'm patch. He's Adam and we are out of here. 